I'm matchmaker Maria, the founder of Agape Match. For over a decade, I've combined four generations of family matchmaking tradition with modern relationship psychology, behavioral science, and dating trends. With this unique expertise, I answer your dating and relationship questions and interview experts to give you the tools to find or keep the love of your life. This is Ask a Matchmaker. Welcome, welcome. So in this week's episode, we will be talking to Kim Polander, who is a relationship expert who assists others through individual and couples counseling. She was born in South Korea and adopted when she was a baby. And her personal injury involved navigating abandonment issues, alcohol addiction, and barriers to emotional intimacy. And with this and her studies in Eastern and Western approaches to healing, it's given her a well-informed perspective on the root of suffering. Kim now teaches other tools for communication, conflict resolution, and building long-term relationships. I am so happy to have Kim on the show. Welcome, Kim. Hi. It's so nice to have you. I'm obsessed with your content on Instagram and TikTok. You give like the best nuggets of uh, such rich advice when it comes to relationships and dating. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be a guest. So um, I'm excited to answer any questions that you or your viewers, listeners have. I love it. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, your background. Um, Where are you coming from in terms of, you know, your knowledge base as a relationship coach? Yeah, well, I started out in IT engineering, kind of a left brain kind of thinker. But I noticed that in my lifetime, I'm 50 years old now, but Mm -hmm. um, people just liked coming to me and confiding in me, um, processing problems. um, And I I guess they found that I was a good listener and I really enjoyed talking to people and just giving them different perspectives. And so it was kind of a hobby, if you can call it that, where I just uh, counseled people a lot mm-hmm. in my spare time. And then I started doing it more on a professional level, getting trained and uh, as a coach and uh, then started doing it kind of as a barter system and then uh, became official where I started offering it as a service in my spare time outside of my day job. And then eventually just transitioned to doing it full time. So it's been a passion of mine kind of my whole life. And I have two master's degrees in, related to psychology, the field of psychology. So I love it. I love learning. And I love really talking to people about just how the psyche works, their their experiences of, of suffering, really, and um, and, you know, how to help them create shifts. So when people come to you, do they come by themselves or are they coming with another person? Mostly now, just naturally over the years, they come to me for couples counseling. Okay. So that seems to be just what people enjoy um, talking to me about. So it's kind of become my specialty is couples when, coaching, relationship coaching. When you meet with couples, do you meet with them like every single week or once a month? Like what is the typical couples counseling formula for your office? Yeah, it all kind of depends on the couple, you know, any sort of counseling, coaching uh, relationship is an investment. So I, uh, I don't like to push any sort of like, we need to meet twice a week or every week. Generally, in the beginning, it's about once a week, Mm -hmm. um, or every other week, if finances are a concern. And, and yeah, it's, um, it's just like a traditional couples counseling relationship where they come to me with their arguments their unresolved conflict, their resentments from the past that neither person can let go. 
uh, or family planning, relationship planning, kind of more of a premarital kind of situation. Mm. So I also offer those services. That's pretty cool. Um, so what, when is the right, I know I'm now asking more like logistical questions before we go into like the nitty gritty yeah, of like what you're totally. coaching, but I know people ask me this all the time, like when is the right time to start um, couples counseling? Mm. You know, in the episode before this one, when this goes out, um, I have a friend who is very public with going to couples counseling with her partner and they started doing it three months into their relationship because it was her first time living with a man. Um, it was, uh, it was in the height of the pandemic. So it's like, wait, we got to make sure we have the communication tools if we're going to make this work. So they took like a really proactive approach. Um, but like, what is a typical approach to couples counseling? Well, I kudos to your friend or the person who started after three months. I think that's great because we're just not taught communication skills in school emotional regulation, that sort of thing. So yeah, the earlier, the better. I do a lot of, like I said, a, a premarital or relationship planning kind of counseling. And generally those couples are more, uh, for lack of a better word, happy, kind of still in that honeymoon-ish state. Mm -hmm. um, and But on average, couples will wait uh, research by the Gottmans um, about five to six years after mm -hmm. they're together. And by then, you know, many couples who come to me are hanging by a thread. They're like, I, we're ready to get divorced. We're ready to break up. This is a last ditch effort. What can we do? So ideally not waiting until that point, not waiting until the four or five year mark is, um, is not preferable to say maybe counseling after year two or three, when you start to really get into some heavy stuff. What is the magic? Um, not magic. That's not the right word. What is the, you know how like there's that movie, the seven year itch. You know, oh, yeah. you mentioned like five or six years, like, is there, um, is there a weight to that? Like, is there a certain year where, you know, people plateau or they are not there, maybe their emotional resilience stops growing. Like where, where do we, where yeah, do we find, find ourselves in checkup mode? I find the pattern, like, um, after about year two, when that rolls around, it's mm -hmm. when the honeymoon phase is kind of worn off. You're learning how to live as long-term partners. You're considering, Hey, is this for life? Uh, if you haven't already made that decision, some couples make that decision very early on, but by year two or so, or three, you really test your mettle when it comes to conflict resolution. And for couples that just can't resolve conflict for whatever reason, and that's a myriad of complex reasons related to childhood or, you know, trauma or whatever the case may be, fear of confrontation even, then I find that a lot of couples break at year three. Now, if you can make it past year three, then you get into the seven, eight year range. You know, you know, there are some theories around why the seven year itch comes around related to astrological um, <laughs> stuff, which I am not an expert on, so I can't Me neither. comment, That's why I left. but, um, I do believe in general cycles of rebirth of introspection of, you know, just reassessing what am I fulfilled by? And mm. so year seven is a very common year for that kind of awakenings to happen, you know, uh, late twenties, you know, that's another time in a person's life in a relationship or not, where you're going to make some big decisions, big, um, you know, the fork in the road, what, what direction do I go? So you're seven or eight, if you can make it past your seven or eight, then, you know, generally you're sitting pretty well. You've learned how to resolve conflict. Perhaps there's also an element of 
couples like who are at 15 years, 20 years, where then they break up and then family and friends are shocked. Like what is going on? They've been together right. 20 years. Why are they breaking up? And for those couples, it's generally they've kind of been disengaged from maybe early on in the relationship, kind of detached where they don't just get into the conflict, get into that conflict resolution. They just kind of have the conflict for sure. And then they just kind of sweep it under the rug. And then 20 years later, you're living, sleeping in separate bedrooms and just kind of roommates and don't, some of them don't even really like each other that much. So, so it's, there's different ways that relationships would have. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So uh, what happens when you are in a position where a couple has come in and let's say like one partner doesn't really want to be there or they're refusing to speak? Has that ever happened to you? I try to address that in the consultation where a lot of times in the consultation, I'll have only one partner show up and I'll try to do my best to find out how willing the other partner is to couples counseling, Uh because so often, you know, the one partner is kind of dragging the other partner or, you know, is pushing it on them, like forcing them. And that's just, I try to avoid those situations. And I'll just say up front that, you know, the only way this has even a chance of working is if both partners are really on the same page about intentions and wanting to be there, being open to talking. And if they shut down, you know, I don't, I don't want to just take people's money. I have a waiting list right now. So um, I want to talk to couples who are wanting the shifts, wanting the insight, wanting the exercises and tools. So, so yeah, if you, if you have a partner that is just refusing therapy is refusing to engage or, or talk, you know, they're, um, yeah, that's a tough situation. It's so interesting, um, speaking with you for me, cause I'm thinking about like, I'm thinking about not only, you know, my own personal situations with, you know, how do we learn how to be in relationships? Right. Um, and that's mm-hmm. mostly from our parents for all, for a lot of us, even your parents, lack of a relationship teaches you how to be in a kind of a relationship. And it just makes me think a little bit about like, you know, I don't know about how you grew up, but I'll share with me when I was growing up. Like if my parents fought, I don't think I have ever seen them resolve a fight ever. Mm. They would just stop talking to each other. Maybe some would, you know, go out for a cigarette. Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, maybe an hour later, there's like a peace offering. That's usually like a cup of coffee or a sandwich or something food or beverage related. And then you just didn't talk about it. And then of course, that's also how the fights between me and my sister, not me and my sister together, but like my, well, maybe even my sister, but my sister and I with our parents, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's again, no conflict resolution being taught. And I see now that like my sister and I, we have had to do a lot of work as adults to learn. And it's still ongoing to learn conflict resolution with our partners. Do you find that, uh, even like on a personal perspective, like, do you find things that, you know, you're taught as a kid that you're like, Oh, that was wrong. How do I fix it now as a person who works in wellness? Yes, for sure. It's, uh, you know, you're so right on when you talk about, yeah, we learn everything from our parents and the good and the bad. It's mm-hmm. all normalized. Like this is love. This is conflict resolution. This is how you express your emotions. You punch a hole in the wall. You know, we learn right. everything from our parents. And so, yeah, it takes a concerted, like it takes a conscious effort to break out of that behavioral conditioning and to, you know, carve a new path. 
and I'm, I'm with you. Like I wasn't taught conflict resolution. My parents were very much like sweep it under the rug. Like don't go to bed angry. They're very religious uh, Christians. Uh, don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger says God. So, um, wait, so wait, say yeah. that one more time. Say that one more time. Oh, there's a, uh, my mom used to say, uh, you should never let the sun go down in your anger. And I, I thought she was quoting the Bible. I don't know for sure. Not an expert on verses in the Bible, but um, but that was the idea is like, even if you're in a knockdown drag out fight with your brother, like I did, <laughs> then uh, you say you're sorry, just like, you know, fist clenched, whatever, just say the words right. and then, and then she can sleep peacefully at night. So, um, I mean, yeah, you know, even now, like uh, I know when I, my father and I will like butt heads and it doesn't happen as often. It's, it's a lot less than it used to be when I was like a teenager, <laughs> but uh, in the few times I can think about in, like the last five years. Um, my dad still does what he used to do. Like he hasn't, there's no mm. growth between my parents. Right. So, you know, it's who, <laughs> that's who they are. And, um, we're all like, try to take a push of like, can we talk about this? Like, can we just be reasonable? Do you understand that you're like being illogical? Like I will kind of like pull out my plan. Like, you know, you know, you're doing this and they'll say like, last time we got in a fight, we were driving and he's like, just drop me off here at the corner. I'm like, I'm not leaving you in the middle of a forest, like five miles from our house. Like, please like stop threatening me. <laughs> That you're gonna leave the car. We could just drive in silence. We don't have to talk. Like, and it was over something like you know, it was like dumb. I I didn't. I'll tell you how dumb it was. I put the GPS to take us home, and it's like a weird location. And my dad was like, "I know the road. You don't need GPS." And he would tell me where to turn. I'm like, "You don't uh, need to tell me where to turn. I have the GPS. Like, it's telling me where mm-hmm. to turn." This is the most immigrant <laughs> fight <laughs> of ego ever. Anyway, and yeah. Uh, yeah, but it went, it went, it immediately like triggered like my flight or fight motor. I was just like, like immediately, you know, I would, when I was a kid, I would clam up. I would, cause you know, my dad, mm. if he got loud, that meant like I was wrong. And I'm like, well, wait a second, you're being loud, but I'm not wrong here. I'm just telling you, I want to continue the conversation we're having without you interrupting yourself to tell me where to turn. I know how to follow a GPS. Yeah. You know, and, and there was just no conflict resolution there. And then it's like immediately start thinking about like my parents, like, oh, my parents do this in front of me when I was a kid and I'm using now a GPS fight, whatever, but I'm, it, it translates to anything. Right. And then of course I see that as an, you know, as an adult person in relationships where I have to like, you know, give myself a timeout, like, oh, I'm being really loud right now and I'm wrong, but I'm learning to be loud because someone else taught me to be loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what are the tips that like, what are the, what is the, I want to give a better word than tips. Um, what are the, what is the format that you teach, you know, your clients, uh, like how to do, how to be better at conflict resolution? Mm. How do you teach people as adults how to be better at something that has been ingrained in their behavior emotionally physically financially spiritually all all of them from when you're a young kid how do you how do you learn these things as an adult yeah i you know great question you know how do you teach this what does this look like and the first step that i do is teaching people how to listen mm. uh, specifically like empathizing you know argue with your partner as if you love them um, as if they're on your side as if they you know us against the problem versus you against your partner. And so the, the biggest complaint I hear with people is that um, they feel misunderstood. So how do you address feeling misunderstood 
Well, you demonstrate to your partner that you understood them. So this is where reflection exercises, mirroring exercises, those kinds of tools come into play where I teach people to slow down the conversation, reflect back, you know, what are you hearing your partner complain about? What are you hearing them asking you? And it's interesting how people will rephrase, you know, what they heard through their confirmation bias, through their, the lens that they look at the world through. And it, uh, that, but that piece of being understood is so important in conflict resolution. You know, research has shown that if, you know, one party, whether it's a country or whether it's an individual in conflict, they will not move forward in the conversation if they feel the other person doesn't understand their position, you know, mm. doesn't get it. And so this first step is really important. And when you're empathizing, empathy is not agreeing with your partner's conclusions. It's merely focusing on your partner's emotional experience. Like, um, you know, I feel angry that you didn't take out the garbage. Mm. Now, if, if, if I'm empathizing with that person, I might say, oh, okay, like, I understand it was my night to take out the garbage. You're really pissed off about it. Like, yeah, I get it. Now I'm not, you know, and let's say they say, you know, like, oh, you're so selfish. You didn't take out the garbage. By me empathizing and focusing on their experience of anger and, you know, like demonstrating, yeah, I understand why you feel that way. I'm not agreeing with the, the whole conclusions outside of that after the emotions about I'm a selfish person. It's merely reflecting back your partner's experience because people in relationships have such lonely, isolated experiences where they have all these feelings, they have all these perspectives, and uh, the other partner doesn't understand them, doesn't want to take the time to understand them, and people end up feeling really lonely. So uh, that's a big important piece is just that, you know, reflections, do you understand your partner? You know, another huge piece that people are not practiced in is expressing your needs. And that sounds kind of cliche, but what it means is what do you want your partner to do? What do you wish they would have done five years ago that you're still mm -hmm. holding on to? What do you wish they do in this situation right now in specifics? Like give them the handbook of success for you. It, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I just, I want to feel closer to you. I want more affection from you. That's not helpful. Be specific. I'd really like a hug from you. Um, I'd really like you to tell me about your day. You know, what were you happy about? You know, yeah. what does emotional intimacy mean to you? And so getting really specific when talking about your needs is another important piece because people are so quick to complain. They're good at complaining, but they're not so great at, okay, what's the solution here for you? So I like to put accountability back on people to tell your partner what you need from them in order to be happier. And if you get it, then you have some accountability and responsibility to move forward, to let it go. I love that. And when you have a couple in your office and you're explaining this, are there certain exercises that you give people to like practice that at home? Yeah, we do it in the session. So we'll practice and I'll help them, you know, uh, because a lot of times in that first uh, step of empathy, what happens is the defensiveness comes out, you know, and how I, the, how, how so? Yeah. Like an, a natural argument is someone complains like, oh, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm angry. Like you didn't take out the garbage. Like you said, you would, you've done this like 10 times in a row. And then the immediate response typically is defensiveness. Mm. Well, you know, I was working 12 hours, you know, that I was working on this project, you know, I was putting the kids to bed, you know, this or that, you know, and in that defensiveness, you miss the complete experience and frustration of your partner. So um, just 
walking people through exercises of this is how you reflect back, you know, paraphrase it back in your own words. What did you hear? Um, and then walking them through the steps, you know, a lot of uh, resolving past resentments involves triggers. So I help couples look at, okay, why is it such so triggering, so disturbing, so hurtful to you that um, they keep forgetting to take out the garbage? You know, where does this tie back to? You know, and then if we think back far enough, sometimes it'll take us back to childhood. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, like I whenever I would ask for things when I was younger, like my father would ignore me or whenever, mm. you know, I expressed the need, then it was always I was always criticized. So now when, you know, I don't even like expressing needs. And by the time I do it, it just comes out really angry. And so, yeah, I, I can see how this is a pattern. So triggers is a really important part because it takes the 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 fire out of the situation because you know that oh this hot button topic mm -hmm. it actually started way before you met your partner mm. so again bringing any, more personal accountability back to you do you ever like re recall any of your own personal triggers um when you speak to your clients oh this is something yes great question this is something that all counselors therapists coaches they experience um hopefully not on a regular basis because I have um, one. But, Tell me, I have a dumb one. Do you have any dumb ones that you're just like, how is this a trigger? <laughs> no, I think I've, maybe I've just uh, trained my brain by this point, but I will say that that's called counter transference. When oh. a counselor is talking to a client and all of a sudden the client kind of triggers them. And then mm. that client becomes their mother or that client becomes their ex. And then all of a sudden you find yourself like thinking negative thoughts about this client when really you're just being triggered by you're transferring the feelings from that person in your life mm -hmm. to their client transference. Um, so yes, if you're not, if you're triggered in a session, you should, a good counselor will poker face. You don't mm -hmm. let it affect you, but then you look at that after the session, you say, mm -hmm. okay, I was really triggered. What kind of personal work do I need to look at? So when I first started many, many years ago, it was, uh, you know, the people who were expressing uh, emotional needs, people who couldn't regulate emotions that used to be really upsetting to me. And then when I went back far enough, trace the steps, my own abandonment issues from being adopted, my own issues around even accessing my heart and my emotions was too upsetting for me. So I just kind of like to snip the cord to my heart and stay more detached. And so, um, yeah, whatever your personal issues are as a counselor, it will come through with your clients. And it's something that you should address early on in your career so that, you know, you can then talk to couples and not be so triggered in the, in the session by either partner and I'll be able to be a better help to them. It's so actually, when I asked you about triggers, I didn't mean that. And I'm so happy you mentioned that because that is a fantastic way to like talk about that. Um, I actually meant like, do you ever talk about your own triggers to a couple? Like for instance, you just oh. mentioned adoption, right? That, mm -hmm. that is, that is traumatic. Like I'm sure I'm, I know that, and I work with people that have been adopted, but there's also mm. a trauma to like, and I'm not trying to associate anything. I'm not going to talk about your own story here, but there is a trauma to like leaving one family and going to another. Right. And for some people it's easier to deal with for other people, it's harder to deal with. And, uh, I can totally, you know, if you're, do you find yourself ever sharing in your own triggers? Like, Oh, like for instance, I do this sometimes I'll say like to my clients, like, you know what, 
just to kind of like show them that we're in this together. Like, I'll tell you about one of my triggers so you can understand what you're experiencing. Like, do you ever talk about your own self in, in, in wellness? I know that's like really emotionally draining too. So, you know, no, it's, um, you know, we're trained at least on, from an official standpoint, they train you to not talk about yourself a lot and not Mm -hmm. do a lot of self-disclosure. They call it Mm -hmm. only because it, um, can have the potential of creating bias from the client. Okay. Like, Oh, you were this or, Oh, especially in couples, um, it might be perceived as taking the other person's side. Uh... So once in a while I might mention it, maybe not in couples because, Mm -hmm. you know, it might be taken by something by either side, either party, Mm -hmm. um, as me aligning with one particular partner by, Oh yeah, I have this trigger, you know, but an individual occasionally I might share something. Um, it's really up to the counselor, how much you, you know, use self-disclosure, but we're taught not to, we're taught to remain like a blank slate. Mm -hmm. The fact that I even mentioned my age, you know, I generally wouldn't mention that much in a session because again, you know, now you have ideas about, Oh, well, my dad is 50 and then you're 50. And then, you know, so you want to try to limit that. At least that's what they teach us. That's neutral, neutral party here. And I, and I I appreciate that. So we know what attachment styles are, right? We've got secure, anxious, avoidant, anxious, avoidant. We've got a couple. Um, I am curious when you go to couples therapy, do you tend to see a pattern of certain attachment styles that tend to come like into therapy or is it mixed bag? For sure. I find a lot of anxious attachment style being matched with avoidant attachment Mm. style. So classic. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And people are always wondering like, how does that even come about? And so if you just consider, okay, let's say anxious attachment, someone who, um, is for good reasons, something that happened, you know, patterned in their life of Mm -hmm. being abandoned or being broken up with out of the blue or, you know, whatever the case may be, not being prioritized, not being the number one or number two in the person's life. And so they start to get these um, limiting beliefs, this sense of self that Mm -hmm. they are not worthy of love, that they are disposable. And so when you come into a partnership and you're seeking out a partner and you have this like driving belief that, oh, well, I just need to please others. I'm not allowed to receive, you know, reciprocation in that. I need to always be sacrificing my own needs for someone else. Well, when you're going out and looking for a partner with that kind of um, programming, we'll call it conditioning, Mm -hmm. then who are you going to be a match for? You're Mm -hmm. certainly not going to be a match for someone who's fully loving and supportive because then, you know, how will you do all your people pleasing? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, what is all, you know, if you start dating someone who's just all about you and wants to know about your hopes and dreams, like, I've talked to many people who reiterate this. It's like, whoa, what is this? Like, you're you're a little needy, aren't you? Like, back off a little bit. How can I help you? You know, so um, it's very natural to me why, or logical, why an anxious attachment type would get paired up with an avoidant because it just fits with your sense of self. Oh, yeah. And I think that's also (laughs) why... um... You know, I, as, as, as much as it hurts my eyes sometimes to watch past episodes, uh, it's, it's exactly why though the Carrie and Mr. Big relationship in sex and city was uh, so popular. It's insanely relatable because a lot of yeah. people, uh, have dated someone avoidant and maybe they're not, their global index is not anxious. Maybe they're secure, but they get pulled into anxious when you mm-hmm. did an avoidant person. It's very like that 
that uh, dynamic in that couple, I really do believe that's what makes the show. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that perspective. I, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I am obsessed. If anyone, <laughs> if for people who have done uh, our agave intensive, they know how obsessed I am with like attachment styles and sex in the city, because you can just like really sit down all day and be like, yeah, this is exactly why the show was popular. You've all experienced yeah. this pull and this pull and this pull and then the push and the push and the push. And it's just, it's, it is, it's the most classic, uh, it's a magnetic, it's a dynamic that magnetizes towards each other. And for the exact reason that you just said, Kim, you know, um, it's so funny because a few days ago, a woman messaged me and she's like, I've been dating a guy for a month and he sent me this message. Is it a red flag? And the message, they've been dating for a whole month. She said they've been on 12 dates. And the message was actually really lovely. It said, I just want you to know that I really like you and I'm really enjoying getting to know each other. And, um, you know, I I can see myself rooting. You know what I'd say that? He said something like, I'm I'm always rooting for your success or some something just kind of like really supportive. That was like the conclusion of this. And I said, why do you think this is a red flag? Because I think it's kind of normal for a guy to express this after that many dates after a month to like express that, you know, his intentions and that he likes you and that he's supporting you. I didn't say all that yet. I just said, why do you think it's a red flag? Yeah. And she said, it's because it's too easy. I'm not chasing. Oh. I'm used to having to ask for this kind of validation acknowledgement. And I'm like, what? Okay. And I'm like, well, there you go. Like the, that's, it's, I don't think it's a red flag. If, if he said this to you, like in the first two days of meeting you, yes, definitely red flag. He doesn't know you. He shouldn't be saying all these things, but four weeks later, so many dates, I don't know. I mean, I think it's okay for someone to say really sweet things to you. And in fact, I'd hope they start saying nice things and sweet things to you. Am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. You know, it's uh, it's very telling. I, she had a lot of honesty about it. Like a lot of she owned it. Like it's too easy. I'm into the chase. So it's a good start. Do you ever find couples and you say to your, do you say to them, like, you need to break up? Oh, <laughs> um, maybe in an extreme situation, uh, where we've been doing counseling for many moons and mm -hmm. I don't see the progress. I don't see them reaching their goals, uh, becomes a situation where they're only talking to each other in the session. They oh. wait to talk to each other until they come to me. And then I might um, do a, you know, a Hail Mary last ditch effort in saying, yeah, you know what? Like you shouldn't be together. You know, this just doesn't seem to be working out. Now, the intention behind that is that it might unite them. They could go home and say, where did that come from? Like, what, what is she talking about? We should be together. We are this or that, you know, get them thinking about all the reasons they should be together. And so mm -hmm. that's the only reason um that i would really be that overt and that forward about yeah you should totally you know not go your separate ways um otherwise uh i might do so in more subtle ways pointing to their goals mm -hmm. pointing to what i observe about their efforts in trying the communication tools and exercises their engagement level how can you know we create an environment or what needs to happen for you to be willing to try something more you know what isn't working for you you know, like trying to figure out, but essentially pointing out that, hey, I don't see this level of effort or engagement. What do you need in order to do this? And then when it, you know, start running up against a brick wall, I don't really have people who, by the time they're in therapy or in counseling, like, I don't really have people just sit there and just 
stonewall me to death and just not talk because they're, you know, you're paying good money to just sit there and, and not be engaging. So, um, but I certainly do have couples who after some time just break up, they send me an email like, yeah, our last ditch effort did not work. We're breaking up. Thank you for your time. And so like, well, they come up with their own conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So So I can only do so much. So what tip would you give, I guess, a counselor then to like help people build sustainable and happy long-term relationships? Yeah. Well, obviously other than picking, you know, I mean, I do think people pick the right partner. I just think sometimes we all have baggage, but I'm sorry for interrupting you, Kim. No, 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 not at all. That's, it's a great point. We, we do all have have baggage, you know, so um, that's one of the things you can do is start to take more accountability of your part in how this relationship is playing out, Mm -hmm. you know, starting from, do you understand your partner? Have you made an effort to Um, starting with, you know, what are your triggers? Why do you, you know, why is this or that such a hot button topic for you? Why does it go so deep? Why is it so hurtful? You know, what are things about your life before your partner even came to the picture Mm. that make this so challenging? How much are you expressing your needs to your partner in specifics? How much are you giving them like the the solution for you? Mm. You know, there's, there's so much that a person can do in a relationship that has nothing to do with their partner. Do you advise people to start doing this before they even get into a relationship? Like if someone is listening to right now and they're single, should they pull out the triggers like worksheet and start? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to start working on stuff, look at your past. You've got a lot of good evidence, you know, all about the evidence. Mm -hmm. So look at your life, look at your relationship with your mother and your father, because there's two relationships that resemble each other, your relationship with your parents and your partner. No other two relationships in your life will mirror each other like that. And people like to argue with me about, no, oh, no, like they're, my partner isn't like my mom or my dad. And then we'll go dive a little deeper. It's like, oh, okay, maybe they are a little bit. So um, right. look at your dynamic with your parents. What did you learn about love, dating, or not dating, but um, love, conflict resolution, money, um, affection, all of it. Um, how do you see those things play out in your relationships? How have they, what have been some of the things that just like make you go from zero to 60 Mm. in anger Mm. or things that really trigger you and then find out where they come from because those triggers are just like percolating, waiting to get poked. And then when you get into a relationship, a romantic relationship where love is on the line, your worthiness is on the line those, uh, whatever's percolating will just blow up in a, in a hot second. If you know what your triggers are, if you've, if you've been doing the work, Mm -hmm. what point do you share those triggers with someone that you're dating right away? First, I don't know the first date, but maybe second, maybe not the first day. Um, but if you know, this is someone that you see potential with, Mm -hmm. then I'm all about just talking about getting in front of the issue. Like, yeah, you know, I've noticed that I have this pattern of, you know, with my, I'll just take me, like with my abandonment issues. And, um, you know, I just know that I tend to overreact at times. I get a little, um, I, you know, have that lens of, oh, is this person trying to leave me? Mm -hmm. So it's just something that I need to monitor and something that sometimes I get triggered by. And I just, um, you know, I try to be open and talk about it. And so, you know, just own your stuff. And then, you know, again, now you're giving your partner a clue as to, hey, when this happens, 
and I perceive it as abandonment, let's say, or I perceive it as rejection, then um, I'm going to be a little sensitive about it. Mm. So why not? Why not talk about that early on? I think that that is really good advice. And uh, it's funny, like I, I tell my clients to, to figure out, like we have a triggers exercise in one of our programs where we try to, you know, first we go through myths and realities of dating. And then we go into triggers because a lot of Mm -hmm. those, the things that we believe about dating, I think are kind of founded on our triggers too, right? Like what we think is supposed to work might not be working because you're triggered. And you know what? I see this the most. It's so funny. I was just talking to someone about this, like earlier today, I'm in my late thirties and I was force fed a diet in the late nineties, early two thousands about like, what is femininity and Mm. what is beauty? Yeah. And not just me, but even the men that I dated were also force fed this media diet, right? Like we didn't, there was not a lot of diversity, uh, like, like there is now then when it came to like different heights and different body types and all that stuff. And even, Oh, even different, uh, races. Um, so I see now, like, sometimes I'll be talking to women who are in their late thirties and even mid fifties who are like, I'm just not, I mean, I'm sure the same exists for people under 35, but like, it's like, oh, I'm not pretty enough to date, or I need to lose five more pounds before I go back on the thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like the same guy who likes you now is the same guy who's gonna like you five pounds from now. Just put on the right photo that looks like you today <laughs> and let him swipe you. You're, you're, you're sabotaging yourself. The myths that you're believing about what dating is supposed to be like, they are rooted in not only the beauty stands that were fed, but also our parents and how they talk to us about if they talk to us about beauty and then in what capacity they talk to us. So it's like, it's so interesting. Like when we do these trigger exercises with our clients um, and we've done it over 2000 times at this point, it's just so interesting to see how much of your triggers is really rooted in like the first eight years of your life. Yes. Yep. You know, like my, one of my biggest triggers uh, I'll share with you, Kim I know my sister likes talking about it because um, I only discovered it a year ago is like the male. The male is a big trigger for me because growing up, my mom, you know, she was trying to, I guess, hide bills from my dad or whatever. And she would tell me, you know, I'm a latchkey kid. Uh, when you get home, get the mail. <laughs> uh. And if I forgot the mail, it would cause a fight. And now it's like the mail comes, I'm immediately, I have to go get it. And I get really upset when my husband gets the mail before I do not because Mm. I don't hide anything. Everything is on auto pay. We're very open about our financial stuff, but I've, I've taught, I've been taught this. I'm responsible for them. It's like the dumbest trigger ever. Like seeing a USPS truck is like (laughs) triggering for me. Yeah. Very Pavlovian. Yeah. (laughs) So I think, and and I I mentioned this like really dumb example, because I think, I think these, these small triggers is what creates like even bigger outbursts later. Yes. If we're not communicating them in some way to our partner. And I think what you said before is like, you know, if you are working on it as a single person, it's easier to communicate those uh, later on when you find someone really special. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah. You know, another thing that you can do is establish little rituals, uh, you know, like rituals to connect, you know, have a way that Mm. you say good morning or good night, a way that you, you know, you would, before they leave, you always do a hug and a kiss or 
Um, you send them little notes or something on Fridays, or, you know, you have a little 10 minute connect time, state of the relationship on Mondays or something or Sundays. So right. little rituals, like we have a date night or we go to this movie whenever it opens or we watch this show together. Any sort of rituals that you can look forward to that's your thing with your partner that's really mm-hmm. special. Um, what does that create from like a physiological perspective when you have rituals? It keeps you connected. Okay. Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, those longer term couples at 15, 20 years, they've lost curiosity about each other because people change so much, obviously, over 15, mm-hmm. 20 years. And then they just assume that their partner, kind of like with parents, you know, you assume your child's the same child that they were when they were eight years old and now they're 30. So um, same thing with relationships, you know, people change and how much have you stayed in contact with your partner as they've changed? When all of a sudden someone wakes up and says, you know what, I want to quit my job and write a book. It's like, what, where did this come from? Right. So um, yeah, just, you know, looking at your partner, like a friend, they're a person, they have their fears, their interests, their hopes and dreams. And I love that. that. So Kim, I know you've got a waiting list, but where can people um, learn more about your services? And of course, find you on the internet. Yeah. My Instagram is KP uh, underscore counseling and then TikTok as well. I'm on there, KP underscore counseling 108, but you can go to my website, kimpolander.com or email me um, info at kimpolander.com. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we'll have all these details in the show notes. So if anyone wants to click over there, they're more than welcome to, uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming to the ask a matchmaker podcast. It was really lovely chatting with you. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed our talk. And thank you for listening to the ask a matchmaker podcast. If you'd like to join me on an upcoming hotline episode, head on over to Instagram, follow matchmaker, Maria, follow this podcast as well. Ask a matchmaker. Tell all your friends, tell them to subscribe so they get a new episode every Tuesday and I'll post links on an upcoming hotline so that you can join me and ask your questions live on during an Ask a Matchmaker recording. Thanks again for listening. Be lovable, but more importantly, be likable. See you next week.